that being said, let us get to what we love, 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 which is the Bible. And so we are going to be in Matthew 5, and let me pray for the sermon as we get started. God, just uh, help us now to see you as our Father in heaven, to see the gospel for our lives, to give us the grace to be willing to believe in Jesus for our salvation, and the grace to walk in the message of the cross, to walk and to see how the gospel applies to our relationships and our life. God, help me as a pastor, a preacher, a teacher today to glorify you, to honor you. I pray that even though we won't remember all the information that's shared from the Bible today, I pray that you might help us to be more impressed with who you are and to be impressed with what you've called us to do. We love you. And we know that our love for you is rooted in your love for us. So we thank you for that love which we need every minute of every day. Thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 5, verse 43, we're continuing and almost kind of a continuation of last week's sermon. Let me read the text to you. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ultimately, Jesus is telling us to love our enemies. As the adopted children of our Father in heaven through Jesus Christ, we are called to a level of life that is impossible. Is, the, is loving our enemies possible with man? No. But with God, all things are possible. With God, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. And where we need strength and power and Holy Spirit is the ability simply to love our enemies. Last week, we saw the passive response to our enemies. And the passive response is when our enemy slaps us on the cheek, we turn the cheek. When our enemy makes us go a mile, we go an extra mile. When the enemy takes away our clothes and our home and our shelter, we ask them if they need anything more. When our enemy needs money, we give up all of our money for our enemy. And we saw that passive, non-retaliation response to evil people in our life, frankly. And we ultimately saw that Jesus was preaching the gospel because when Jesus went to the cross for us, he was slapped across the face. His beard was pulled. He was spat upon. His clothes were taken off of him. We saw that Jesus gave all of his economic life to the world to save us sinners. That ultimately, that passive non-retaliation is rooted in Jesus' love for us. Let me ask you, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? 
Do you know God? Are you justified in the presence of God? The way we're justified is seeing that Jesus took the slaps for us as the enemies of God. That Jesus laid down his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus turns to us who have been redeemed and forgiven at such a great level and at such great cost. And he says, I want you to redo in this world what I have done in your life. I want you to redo the cross in all of your interpersonal relationships. I want you to go the extra mile. Turn the extra cheek. I want you to lay down your life in self-sacrifice. I want you to pick up your cross and die. For others. Now that's hard enough. I mean, if we were on TV right now, I'd say, turn to your neighbor and say, that's hard. (laughs) Passive non retaliation to our enemies is difficult, but Jesus goes a step further today, doesn't he? He talks about active participation in our enemies' lives. Not only laying down and carrying the cross of our enemies, but responding positively actively loving our enemy. What is love? It is divine goodwill. It's agape. It's not rooted in who they are or what their performance is or what they've done for us. Agape love is rooted in an inward attribute, a characteristic that flows from the heart, not based on conditions or what others have done, but based upon a nature. God's love for us is not based on our performance, is it? It's based on his holy character, an eternal perspective, an attribute of his holy character going into eternity past called love. First John says God is love and it's from that divine goodwill that he sent his only son to die for us. And now he's calling us to love our enemies the same way, actively. What does it look like to love our enemies? It means praying for those who persecute us. It means doing good to those who don't deserve to be done good to. It means greeting our enemies with a genuine hello, blessing. Love your enemies. This is why the Sermon on the Mount is so controversial. People don't like the Sermon on the Mount. Somebody wrote a letter to C.S. Lewis and they said, I don't feel like you like the Sermon on the Mount. And C.S. Lewis responded back to him in a letter that said, Whoever likes the Sermon on the Mount is not a human being. This is impossible. We ask ourselves questions when we come to a text like this. Well, who's he mean? I mean, okay, 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 I got to love my enemy. But who is my enemy that I'm supposed to love? Jesus clearly gives us three categories of enemies. Let me give them to you really quickly by way of introduction. He tells us exactly who he means by loving your enemies. Number one, it could be just people who have mistreated you. They've said an unkind word to you. They've gossiped behind your back. They've ruined your reputation with a group of people. They, they, have, they, have, they have lied or, 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 or done something to mistreat you. You see that in the context. They've slapped you on the cheek, figuratively speaking. They've taken your clothes. They've made you go a mile. They've treated you with disrespect. This is Father's Day. We fathers, we like, I'm a father. I'm a man. I'm a fully grown man. I'm 40. I'm a man. Can I get an amen? I want some respect off in this place. 
We men, we got egos and we won't respect. And when that doesn't happen, I've got an enemy on my hands because I've been mistreated. Some of you have been mistreated in your homes or in your work or maybe in your church. Jesus says, I need you to love your enemy. A second category Jesus gives us for loving our enemies is those that persecute us. He says it clear clear as day in verse 45. Uh, He says, or, or verse 44, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a special type of enemy. That's an enemy who hates you because of what you believe about God and Jesus. The ripple effect, the wake of the Beatitudes is still flowing in this sermon. When Jesus says in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 and and verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is preparing his church. He's preparing believers for the ability to boldly and courageously stand and speak for God and speak for Jesus knowing there will be persecution. And when that persecution comes, we are still called to love those who persecute us. We can't be like those Christians who say, I'm going to stand for Jesus. And then when people disagree with us about Jesus, go, I don't like you anymore because you disagree with me about Jesus. Jesus is saying, no, you have to keep loving even those who persecute you. How many martyrs had that, that verse memorized when they were burned at the stake and they remembered and they prayed There was Jesus on the cross who said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And Stephen, in turn, in Acts, the first martyr in the Bible, Stephen in the book of Acts, when he was being stoned to death by those religious, horrible people. And he, too, forgave them in his moment of death. Those that mistreat us, those that persecute us are our enemies We've already covered pretty much any human being in your life that's your enemy, but there's a third one. The third category of enemies that we might have are those that just simply offend us. Again, not to be redundant, but to allow Scripture to be the source of the words I'm I'm saying today. Verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The first clause is from the Bible, you shall love your neighbor. In fact, it's from Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 34 says, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Ultimately, Jesus is quoting Leviticus. But then that last part, hate your enemy, is the Pharisees' interpretation of those texts from Leviticus. And here's what the Pharisees were doing. They were saying, well, if the Bible and the law says that I'm to love my neighbor, who is my neighbor? That was the big theological question. They had to figure out who is my neighbor and why did they want to figure out who was their neighbor so that they could figure out who their enemy was so that they could create a special list of people that they can uniquely and biblically hate. So that's why Jesus and Luke 
gives the parable of the Good Samaritans because the, the guy, the lawyer, says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, oh, the non-Jew or half-Jew Samaritan is your neighbor, which means everybody is your neighbor. How dare you? You look at the law and you create these limitations so that you can justify your own hatred for people. And who was it that the Jewish Pharisees in particular hated? They hated Gentiles. They said, my neighbor is only other Jewish people. So their hatred, watch this now, their hatred was racial. It was ethnic. Their hatred was theological. Their hatred was of people who were different than them. They were, there was an elitism, there was a self-righteousness. Uh, I look at people who are different than me or poorer than me or economically different or racially different or theologically different. And you offend me. You offend me because of the color of your skin or because of your doctrine statement or, or, or because of how much money you have or how little money you have. How many of us poor people look at the guy that's driving the Beamer and go, I don't like that guy. Or how many of us with the Beamers look at people who don't have the nice car and go, they should work harder. People who offend us. Or in the churches, in evangelical worlds, how many Calvinists hate Arminians? How many Arminians hate Calvinists? How many Pentecostals hate non-Pentecostals? And how many non-Pentecostals hate Pentecostals? And we begin to make these theological distinctions very personal, don't we? We make them very personal. And Jesus says, you are to love your enemies. Even those who are completely different than you. Even those who are offensive to you. You are to love and pray for them and do good and greet them and welcome them and hug them and love them. That is being light of the world, salt of the earth. That is, that is what it means to be a gospel witnessing person is to love your enemy. Let me ask you, do you love your enemies? My goodness, I... I look at these texts, and i got to tell you, I am exhausted teaching this stuff. Just exhausted. Because you know what it does? It forces me to face my own brokenness. Sometimes I've not loved my enemies. Sometimes I love only those who come through for me. And when somebody betrays me, when somebody's no longer there for me, when somebody makes me promises and then they just drop off the face of the earth, they don't, they don't, they don't speak to me anymore, they don't, they don't like my sermons anymore, don't ever not like my sermons. I become offended because of my own ego. See, it faces me not only with my lack of faith in the gospel and my lack of faith that the gospel is powerful. It makes me face the fact that I am really broken. I need help. How can I love my enemies? Jesus, thankfully, is here to help us. He tells us in this passage about loving our enemies. He gives us three clear motivations that will undergird and lift us to higher levels and at least begin to pull us in a direction that will help us to love our enemies. Whether they're enemies who offend us or, or they persecute us or, or they mistreat us or are mistreating us. He tells us three reasons why we should be motivated to love our enemies. Let me give those to you now. Number one, he says, here's motivation to love your enemies. When you love your enemies, you have the opportunity to imitate your father who is in heaven. 
You have the opportunity to look like God, to imitate God. He says in verse 45, after saying, love your enemies, so that, there's the purpose, there's the motivation, so that, why should I, why should I love my enemies? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now I have to tell you, I love this. Because you know what, as a believer, as somebody who is blood-bought, Holy Spirit-filled, having the Bible in my hands and standing in community in the church. You know what I long for and what all you believers long for the most, even when you forget it, what you long for the most is imitating the Father who is in heaven. And God gives us a clear opportunity. You can look like God. You can look like the Father on Father's Day. You get to look like God. And there is no higher reward for a human being than to reflect the love of God. Les Miserables, which I happen to sing all the time for my children. I don't know about you. Do you all like, do you all like Les Miserables? I love it. Today? No. Okay, I won't do it. But, <laughs> but in that musical, based on Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables... The song goes, to love another is to see the face of God. Jesus goes even deeper than that. Jesus says, to love your enemies is to see the face of God. To love your enemies is to look like God, to reflect God. We exist to glorify God. We are satisfied when we glorify God. We find joy and pleasure in glorifying God. You see, Jesus doesn't tell us to love our enemies. He doesn't say like superficial platitude things, you know, that, you know like, like love your enemies because love wins. Or love your enemies because love works. Because here's what the Bible says in reality. We live in a fallen, dark, messed up world. And the truth is, is that sometimes love doesn't work. The cross teaches us that. Did not Jesus love the crowds and heal them? Did he not heal them of their leprosy and help them to walk when they hadn't walked for 38 years? Didn't he give the blind sight? Didn't he give the deaf hearing? Didn't Jesus display all of the love of God in his three years of ministry? And yet those very crowds that watched him love were the same crowds that shouted out, crucify him, put him on the cross. No, love doesn't win. Love doesn't work. It's not going to fix everything. It's not going to change your enemy all the time. It's not, it's not like if you love your enemy, then they'll suddenly become your friend and just really like you a lot. No, we have to be prepared to love our enemies even when they remain our enemies. How can we be motivated to do that? Jesus tells us. He says, you get a greater reward than anything else. You get to imitate God. You get to look like God. In fact, to undergird this imitation of God, this imitation of our Father in heaven, he gives us a, a doctrinal idea, a theological idea, amazing theological idea in verse 45. We call it 
common grace given to all human beings and all living creatures. He says that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, the sovereign God... By the way, note how Jesus says that the sun belongs to God. Can I get an amen? Weather belongs to God. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. And Jesus tells us, imagine two farmers, farmer A, farmer B. Farmer A loves Jesus, loves God, is righteous, has been changed and transformed by grace. Farmer B is a pagan who doesn't believe in God, hates God, cusses every all day long. He's a horrible person. In fact, farmer B is just a, a, a big, tall, uncircumcised, Gentile unbeliever. You see what I'm saying? Farmer A and farmer B. And they live in the same region. Are y'all following me? They live in the same region. Their farmlands back up to each other. And there they are. Now, does farmer B experience different weather than farmer A because he's an unbeliever? He gets the same amount of rain. He gets the same amount of famine. He gets the same amount of blessing or or fruitfulness or opportunity for fruitfulness as farmer A, who's a believer in Jesus, who's this great, godly, righteous person who goes to church every single Sunday, which you should do. Can I get an amen? And Jesus says something remarkable, that God is so loving. He has a love of benevolence, a common grace love. Now, this common grace cannot save farmer B. It doesn't convert him. It doesn't give him heaven. It doesn't give him justification. But it gives him a benevolent love from God, which is air and sunshine and rain and the ability to have a family and the ability to work every day and the ability to love other people. God gives that to farmer B, even when farmer B doesn't like God. In other words, we can safely say, based on the doctrine of common grace, that God loves all people. You say, oh, now wait a minute. Hang on. Time time out. Because I know some Bible verses. I know some Bible verses like Romans chapter 9. It says, God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So what are you going to do about that big man up there preaching the Bible? Well, there's common grace and there's covenant grace. And covenant grace is a different thing. It's a love that transforms, that renews, that regenerates. It's a love of election and it's a love based on the faith of a person in Jesus Christ. That's a deeper love. J.I. Packer said it like this. J.I. Packer says, God loves all people in some ways, but he loves some people in all ways. When we're a believer in Jesus Christ, we come into a covenant grace. We come into covenant with God, a steadfast love that takes us into eternity, that guarantees our future, secures our salvation and our forgiveness and our redemption and our reconciliation. But Jesus is looking up the common grace love of God that he has for all people. And he says, when you love your enemies, you get to imitate one of the awesome attributes of God that he loves all people in some ways. It says in Psalm 145 and verse 9, The Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. And when we love our enemies, we get to imitate that. That is some fuel to begin to pray for our enemies. That is some fuel to greet our enemies. That is, that is some fuel to begin to do good to our enemies. The second motivation, though, that Jesus gives is not only the imitation of the Father, but the opportunity to counter culture, to counter the love of the world. 
And the love of the world is based upon conditions. He says in verse 46, it's kind of, and I I really do wish I had three hours to break this text down because it's very interesting because he's talking about the way their enemies act so that he can tell them how to love their enemies. It's very interesting. But anyways, verse 46, he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Great question. So, you know, you get to heaven, right? Like those of you who are justified by faith in Jesus and you're going to go to heaven. There's angels meet you. And you go into glory and you walk in there and they say, what'd you do? Say, man, I was awesome, man. I was able to love my friends and really hate my enemies. And like nobody in heaven's going to be impressed by that. Can I get an amen? What reward is there if you just love those who love you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? There's nothing remarkable about you, nothing different. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now, it's universally agreed throughout all of history that tax collectors are just not the most likable people in all of history. We don't like tax collectors. We want politicians who promise that they will get rid of the IRS. Hallelujah. We don't want the government collecting any more of the money that we have worked hard to keep. But tax collectors in the days of Jesus were particularly evil. And the reason why was because they were Jewish people who got into friendship with Rome. And Rome said to Jewish people who lived in Israel, I want you to go collect from your other Jewish countrymen and brothers taxes for Rome. And I'm going to pay you money for it. And so these Jewish people would go collect taxes from their countrymen. And so that's not patriotism. That's the very opposite. That's betrayal. Because there was taxation without representation. We Americans know about that. Taxation without representation. And these tax collectors would go and collect taxes. And on top of that, not only would they collect taxes for Rome, but they were allowed by Rome to charge whatever interest they wanted to on people. They could extort their fellow countrymen at any level they want. There was no regulation for the fees that they would charge for collecting taxes. Those are horrible people, beloved. If we had the comparable uh, type of people that lived in our society, we would want to string them up with a rope because they betrayed country, they betrayed their own people, and they did it all for money. You can't think of more horrible people than tax collectors in Jesus' day. And yet Jesus says, as bad as they are, even they know how to love their friends. Even as evil and as devious... As turncoated as they are, they know how to love their friends. They know how to love people who love them back. And we might ask, well, who, what kind of friends do they have? What kind of friends does tax collectors have? Other tax collectors. So Fred, the tax collector, hangs out with Bob, the tax collector, and they high-five each other all the time and brag about all the money that they make. But they know how to love each other. Now, Jesus is saying... If you love only those who love you, you're no different than a tax collector. You're as remarkable as a tax collector, which is not very remarkable. He goes on to describe Gentiles. What's he mean by Gentiles? He means non-Jewish people. Non-Jewish people were uncircumcised pagans. They worshipped all kinds of gods, if they worshipped God at all. They practiced disgusting lifestyles. They were pagan and secular and were not God-fearing and 
could care less about spiritual realities that mattered at all. That was Gentile people. And yet even Gentile people who are completely grotesque spiritually, completely grotesque in their lifestyles, completely grotesque in their practices, even Gentiles know how to love their friends. And if you love only those who love you back, you're no more remarkable than Gentiles. Jesus is saying, when you love your enemies, you have an opportunity to look different than everybody else. You have an opportunity to be so distinguished, so remarkable in an unremarkable world, so uncommon in a common world. C.S. Lewis used to say this. He used to say, when we go with the times, we go where all times go. And Jesus is telling us not to go with the times, not to go with culture, not to go with this idea of I'll like you if you like me because I'm so insecure because I need you to like me in order for me to like you. And when you don't like me, it just really hurts my ego and so I'm no longer going to like you. That's so common and it goes where all times go. You know where it goes? It goes to nothing, meaninglessness, insignificance. You want to be significant? You want to go to a different level? Learn to love your enemies. You'll be uncommon. The reward for you will be great. Jesus says that the motivation to love our enemies is the imitation of our Father to counter culture. And finally, and perhaps as importantly as imitating the Father, when we love our enemies, we get to display our adoption, the identity of our adoption to God through Christ. Once more, lay your eyes on verse 45. Jesus says, love your enemies. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus, in that one statement, is giving us possession of salvation, possession of family with God. God has turned from not only our judge, he's become our Father in heaven, The Apostle Paul would outline and detail the uniqueness of our adoption. That when we were born, we were not born children of God. We were born children of Satan in sin, fallen. And yet Jesus came and purchased at the expensive cost of his blood our adoption. And by faith in him, the Holy Spirit comes out and cries within us that we are children of God. Here Jesus is preaching the gospel before the gospel. And what gospel is he preaching? Adoption. He says it again in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Again, he emphasizes God is your heavenly father. You are putting on display your unique and confident adoption with God by the way that you love your enemies. You are sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. And when we love our enemies, we display that adoption. Because here's what happens with it. Listen. Why do we, why do I, let me, I'm going to put this on me. Why do I struggle to love my enemies? And I do. I struggle with it every day. You want to know why I struggle with loving people that are unlovable and that don't love me right? Because I'm insecure. Because I'm egotistical. Because I'm proud. 
And when Jesus gives me adoption and I walk in that adoption, I say, I'm a son of God by faith in Jesus through his love for me. You know what begins to flood my heart? Love from God. And I become secure. And I become stabilized. My ego gets deflated. My security gets increased because of what he's done because I'm a child of God. And when I begin to walk in the world as an adopted son of my father in heaven, I become, guess what, a better husband. I become a better father. I become a better friend. And I become a better prayer of my enemies because I don't need anything from my enemies anymore. I don't need my enemies to like my sermons anymore. Hallelujah. I don't need people to affirm me or pat me on the head for me to get through life or get through the week. I have God. I don't need a bunch of likes on Facebook to get a good rush of a feeling. I am adopted son of God through Jesus Christ. I am a son of God. And Jesus says, when you can pray for your enemies, when you can do good for those who are not worthy of you doing good for them, you are putting on display your security in Christ. God is glorified. You begin to work out this salvation, the glorious salvation that we have in Christ. Are you not beginning to see that this is the solution for all your relationships? That's it. This is it. We are on it. We started out going, this is so hard. Now we're going, this is so wonderful. You are sons of God. I must tell you, man, and I love verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, what does that word perfect mean? Evangelists rightly have looked at this verse and said, you know, the only way you're going to be saved is through perfection. You have to be perfect to enter heaven. And that's right. Perfection is required to enter into glory, to have the promise of the kingdom of God. Perfection is required. And guess who's never going to be perfect? You and me. All of us. Ain't nobody here ever going to reach perfection. Congratulations. You fell. Amen. And therefore, an evangelist will rightly use this verse and say, however, Jesus is perfect in our place. Jesus is our righteousness, so that by faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, I make it to heaven based on his work, not my own work, based on his relationship to the Father, not my religious duties. Rightly would the evangelist say that based on this very idea. However, when we look at verse 48, we have to see it in context. And perfect is a word that in the Greek was used to describe a full-grown adult. All right, now watch this. This is a Greek word that you use to literally describe a full-grown adult. So you might say, when I reach full height and I'm no longer growing up. Now, we all grow out sometimes, but when I'm not... When I'm no longer growing in height, you might look at me and you could use the Greek word here and say, he is perfect. My daughters have asked me from time to time as they've grown up, they say, Daddy, are you going to grow any taller? And you know what I say? No, I am perfect. See, See it works. You can use this. All right. Full grown maturity. Also, this word was used to describe perfection of a kind. So an area or a realm of perfection, the word could be used for perfection of a kind. I was reading about the history of blues, blues guitar the other day, right? Because I've been working on my skills. (laughs) Anyways, and 
And one of the things that this article said about the history of blues is that Stevie Ray Vaughan perfected rhythm and lead guitar blues. That was perfection of a kind. We can't say about Stevie Ray Vaughan that he perfected classical guitar or he perfected even jazz guitar, but we could say of a kind of guitar, blues guitar, he perfected it. When we add this material together, yes, this is a an impossible standard that Jesus is giving to us, but he's talking in the context of love. He's saying that you must be perfect of a kind that is in love for other people as God is perfect in love. That's the goal. That's the standard. That we are to grow up and continue to mature in love, and we do that by loving our enemies. I really like that. I really like that. Many of y'all know, I've shared with you, I'm very vulnerable here at Crosspoint. I've shared with you all of my weaknesses, one of which is I'm not very good at shooting a gun. So I really like these nonviolent passages because I no longer have to be good at shooting a gun. Can I get an amen? Anyways, when I go and shoot at a target at a gun range, I'm just really not good. And so I'll send the target, you know, 15, 25, 35, 50. I'll get it out there. And, of course, I can't hit the bullseye. And you know what I've come to peace with? I'm never going to hit the bullseye. It's not going to happen. I need to just manage my expectations because I'm a horrible shot. But you know what I get really excited about? When I hit the sheet. I'll be like, boom, 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 boom. I'll pull it up. I'll like, I hit one. I hit the sheet once. And, like, and then there's the shaded guy, you know, outlined in black. And, like, if I hit any part of that, that's like, pack it up. This is the greatest day ever. <laughs> right? I'll be like, I hit his right shoulder. And they'll be like, were you aiming at the right shoulder? No, I was aiming at the left one. But still, it was close. And, you know, when we think about God's perfection, what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a perfection of a kind. And he's saying, listen, you're never going to be perfect. But, man, if you can learn to love your enemies and grow in this area, you'll start hitting the sheet. You might not ever hit the bullseye, but you'll start hitting the sheet. You will get closer to that realm of perfection by loving your enemy. You see, you get to display your adoption. You get to counter your culture. You get to imitate the Father. This is fuel for the fires of our ability and our passion to pray for our enemies, to love our enemies. Now, by way of conclusion, as we think about this today and as we prepare for communion, let me give you three specific, tangible ways that Jesus says you can begin to activate this new motivation for loving your neighbors. Now that you're all motivated and fired up, you're like, I'm fired up, pray for, fired up to love my enemy. He gives you three practical things that you can do so that you can use that motivation clearly. And these tell you the, yes, the way you measure whether you're loving your enemy or not. Number one, you need to pray for your enemies. How do I love my enemies? Pray for them, verse 44. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus on the cross, Luke 23 and verse 34. Not only did he passively not retaliate when his clothes were stolen or 
Not only did he not return the blows to his cheek, but he turned the other cheek. Not only did he allow them to strip him naked, not only did they take everything from him, but he actively loved his enemies by praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus is calling us to a divine, forgiving prayer life for those who are offensive to us, for those who persecute us, for those who mistreat us. And I have to ask you, especially if you're holding bitterness in your heart today, have you tried praying? Have you tried it? Pray for your enemies. Corey Ten Boone was a Dutch Christian during World War II. And as Germany invaded the Netherlands, her family began to hide Jews so that they wouldn't be persecuted. Ultimately, Corrie Tim Boom was arrested along with her family and went from concentration camp to concentration camp. And she had to live under the abuse of Nazi soldiers. And her and her sister Betsy experienced incredible horror. And yet she was a believer, and they were able to smuggle a Bible into her concentration camps, and they were able to survive and read Scripture and to walk out their faith in the gospel in powerful ways. So when she survived and she got out, she began to speak in German churches about the gospel of Jesus' forgiveness, about the power of his word in dark times. She talked about God's will being our hiding place, and so she titled her book, The Hiding Place. But one time at a church service in Munich, one of the soldiers who had abused her and her sister came up to her after she spoke. This is what she says about that encounter in her book, The Hiding Place. She said this, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing. Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said. To think that as you say, he has washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had just preached and who preached so often to the people, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. And when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. 
Praying for your enemies sometimes means praying for yourself, right? When you can't possibly forgive or you can't finally do it. And you can ask Jesus, give with me the command, the help. Pray for your enemies sometimes by praying for yourself. Have you tried praying for your enemies? Use that motivation Jesus gives you to do so. Here's the second thing. Let me go a little quicker. Do good. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 24, bless those who persecute you. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15, do not return evil for evil, but good for evil. We must do good. That might mean that we don't gossip about our enemies or we don't, we don't tell other people our stories of abuse to prop ourselves up and to feel better or we don't. We don't ruin somebody's reputation, even those that we might not be able to give a cup of cold water to because the abuse would not allow us to get that close, yet, yet still we're to do good by praying for them, by not, not wishing that they would go to hell. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us when we, when we experience an evil person is we secretly pray, I hope they stay evil so that I'm proven right in the long run that they're as bad as I've experienced them to be. Shouldn't it be that we should pray that even if they've done horrible things, shouldn't we pray that somehow they'll be delivered, that they'll do good? Do good. Pray. And finally, greet. Literally, salute. Gentiles and tax collectors only greet those who love them. Can we not greet those that do not love us? Jewish people had a word that they greeted people with the word shalom, which meant peace of God. We don't have a word like that. We usually say something like, hello, or what's up? We do have a departure word that does have a sacred blessing to it, goodbye. Goodbye is a short version of God be with you. Shouldn't we greet and depart from our enemies by a genuine God be with you. You see, Jesus is driving us. There's no way that we can grow in this unless we begin to be shaped by his love for us. Don't you see, Jesus prayed for you. Jesus has done good for you. Jesus greets you with forgiveness. And it's not fake. It's not like Jesus is like, yeah, it's acceptable if you say, Lord, I pray for Fred. Good, I did it, I prayed. Lord, I'm going to do good to Fred. Hello, Fred. You know, I'm going to greet Fred. Like, Jesus is calling us to a genuine heart of love. And the only way we can cultivate that towards those that offend us, persecute us, have mistreated us, is if we're shaped by God's own love for us. Let us think about that as we prepare for communion, a meal that reminds us of God's love and his gospel as the hope of our transformation. Let us pray.